Welcome to episode 43 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with somebody who you think might need to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. There's been a lot of talk about how technology can support or enhance suicide prevention efforts, so we reached out to a recognized expert in artificial intelligence and machine learning with lived experience as a United States Air Force officer to get his thoughts on this topic. I'm so proud to host my friend Mike Kanan for this fascinating interview on the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the area of suicide prevention. Michael Kanan is the nation's leading AI expert and author of the recently published book, T-AI. He has led AI efforts in the Pentagon in the past, and he is currently at MIT, where he continues to advance thoughtful uses of artificial intelligence. He's a high-level, brilliant thinker with a strong humanistic bent, an engineer with the heart of an artist. This interview is so thoughtful that I listened to it twice, and I thought about it long after reflecting on the two points I wanted to pull out. Let's hear what he has to share. Yes, I think that one, Michael's expertise, but also his eagerness related to this specific topic is a great conversation to include in the podcast series. So we'll get into my conversation with Michael and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. One of the things that many people want to do in this community regarding suicide prevention is identify who's at risk. How do we intervene effectively when someone is contemplating uh, death by suicide? And then how do we support them? So that's really what everybody's trying to do. And one of the ways that people are trying to snatch out of the air is say, how do we use this new thing, AI, machine learning, to be able to do those things? And that's where you come in with your expertise. So. I think these are, you know, important conversations to have, and I appreciate you, Duane, for having me here and your determination on bringing this conversation not only to light, but to life regarding trauma, depression, and the seminal topics at hand for our military. And I think we need those kind of conversations, particularly right now, no matter how tough or uncomfortable they might be. Why else have we created verbal and written language? It would be a shame if humanity let that special development of ours go to waste on hard topics. So for myself, when I think of my love of technology and being a part of this conversation, I think back to books. I think back to Sagan's Cosmos and Hawking's Universe in a nutshell, or being 10 years old and reading Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe over and over again, or Harari Sapiens most recently. They are favorites like Tolstoy, Huxley, Virginia Woolf, and many others. And all of these actually have something in common to include with if you give a mouse a cookie or good night moon. The commonality is that these things debate and discuss the topics of consciousness, theories, physics, biology, social realities, technologies, and all the rest of the things that really constitute the human experience. And that's what good literature, great podcasts like this, conversations consist of. It's centered around candid dialogue. And maybe that's with someone else or others, but maybe that's with yourself too. And for me, those concepts of consciousness, experience, social order, and frankly, the human story is really brought together 
in technology, and especially now with artificial intelligence. And many bring these points to light, but back to the point, fewer to life. So I think let's talk about AI. First and most importantly, it's important to understand that it is an extremely powerful tool and it has immense implications we should consider and evaluate pretty carefully. It's a sharp instrument that we shouldn't callously wield or be casually accepted, especially if it's in the wrong hands or when it's used for intentionally or unintentionally intrusive or oppressive purposes. And there are serious concerns about this and there are some steps we must take to ensure AI is properly designed and implemented because for AI, it's entirely possible to connect the relevant dots and understand the overall picture, but it can also be coldly accurate in all the wrong points too. So for everyone, I think it's important to start with a quote. Einstein is often attributed with saying, you don't really understand something unless you can explain it to your grandmother. And I think that's true, but had Einstein known my own grandmother, he would have altered his words slightly. A more precise adage would be, your grandmother is likely the smartest person you'll ever encounter. So if she doesn't understand your explanation, it's sure that no one else will either. And now after the better part of a, a decade focused on AI and in this field, I've learned a little bit about the common misperceptions and misgivings people have when trying to discuss AI like we're doing here. So let's start at the crux of the matter for the people listening. Most conversations about AI whether in auditoriums, offices, coffee shops, or on this podcast, begin or end with one or more of the following questions. The first, what exactly is AI? The second, what aspects of our lives will be changed by it? The third is which of those will be beneficial and which of them harmful? The fourth is where do other people stand in relation to us in using AI? For the military, we talk quite frequently about China and Russia. And the last and probably most important, is what can we do to ensure that AI is only used in legal, moral, and ethical ways? And although those answers to the questions merit long discussions, and they're totally open to differing opinions, they should probably be a little more manageable and factually accurate. They shouldn't be difficult to discuss or debase, not conversationally or even at the policymaking or political levels, but they generally are. And this is where we move it back to the conversation we have at hand, the tough one. The disconnect that usually occurs isn't because of complex technical details or computer issues. It's simply because of the same old obstacles that too often stand in the way of many other conversations. Regardless of the topic, when it matters most, we are too frequently speaking below, above, around, or past one another, especially when we don't have equal information, a shared base of knowledge, or a common set of experiences. That's an important uh, kind of highlighted word. And that's the same problem in some of our current language as we aim to understand how technology can benefit our ability to support, intervene as appropriate, by the way, a relative word appropriate, and connect to a loved one or a colleague, whichever it may be, or both at the same time. But that means we need to use the right kind of language, thoughtfully, specifically, in the right context. So I'll give you an example. Countless times, particularly as of late, I've heard ideas floated, and I mean significantly floated, to the effect of this. Let's use AI to predict, combat, literally solve, insert any verb you want here, suicide. And for me, statements such as that 
it doesn't only indicate that this person might not understand how AI works, but also that they don't understand or are unintentionally trivializing the nuanced complexity of the human experience or trauma or suicidal ideations or depression. Maybe a more precise question, not a statement, would be how can we effectively and ethically use technology to best help in the pursuits of delivering care to others? See, when you're working in AI, that's the first indicator of a lack of sophistication or knowledge on the topic or a foundation. One makes statements, doesn't ask questions. And humility in the digital age is a very real thing. No, and, and definitely some great points, but this idea of AI being a focus tool, a scalpel instead of a club or to mix mm -hmm. metaphor, we have this fire. So we're just going to take this super tanker and then just dump this stuff on the fire and then it's going to work. And that's not the way that AI or machine learning. And again, I, I know the terms. I don't even know enough to be dangerous, but I think I understand it. And I don't even understand the, the beginnings of it, I believe, because it's not my role. But that's really what you're talking about is people say, let's use this new thing over here the way I understand it to be to fix this big problem we have without really understanding the nature of the tool. Right. And I think you hit it nail on the head there. And it's having an open dialogue and being willing to hear others and, and frankly, learn first. There's a common kind of term used as of late in the Department of Defense. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it anecdotally. It's literally hey, sprinkle some of that AI stuff on it. And there's a journey to get to that place because AI, it's not really a thing, right? It's the culmination of a journey of really understanding what you do, really understanding the data in which you are collecting. And if you do that really well, then perhaps you can start automating some processes or discovering some insights you might not have seen. And then you use AI tool, right? to ask new questions you didn't ask before. And it's only specifically applicable in, in very specific and special arenas. And I think the conversation should be drawn a little bit back to journey along that path and to say, what's a good use of technology or something interesting as we try to address these difficult subjects? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that we're trying to construct a minority report type of situation where we can identify when somebody is imminently about to take their own life. And people think that if we just evaluate every aspect of that individual's life, look at their financial records, look at their relationships, look at their social media, look at their syntax, all of this stuff. There's computer out there that can predict with some degree of certainty that this individual is about to take their own life in X amount of days, weeks, months, years. And then we can intervene in that and again, that's not the way that AI or machine learning works. Right. And it's not always the way that we've characterized or discussed the problem at hand. And, and you're pushing right into the heart of the conversation about the current state of machine learning. These applications, they're designed to analyze data and formulate predictions without any overall guidance from us. That's the intent, right? That doesn't mean, however, that it's necessarily safe from the effects or influence of human biases. Because it's not. Just because an algorithm's analysis is based only on data doesn't mean its outputs will be neutral or objectively fair. In fact, it's quite common for human biases to be reflected in our data. And when they are, 
it stands to reason that any of the subsequent analyses, strategies, or predictions based on that data is biased as well. And the worst part is if decisions are made or actions are taken based on bias analysis, then the underlying biases will of course perpetuate and possibly ingrain historical and cultural inequities even deeper into our lives than we're seeing right now. And the steps necessary to ensure that doesn't happen are not difficult, they're, they are difficult, but they're not impossible. They require conscientious and concerted efforts at the development and training stages of machine learning algorithms, plus attentive analysis and oversight at the implementation and use stages. That's just as important. You're always observing in this sort of flywheel effect. So something interesting is understanding the underlying nature of the problem. Most of us believe that we're fully aware and consciously in control of our bias inclinations and our opinions, and that we're able to intentionally include or exclude them however we see fit, particularly on such an important topic, something truly altruistic, but we're not. The truth is we're relatively unable to separate ourselves from our biases or our biases from ourselves, very meta. We aren't even aware of many of the prejudices we hold and we're accordingly unaware of the many ways they influence our behavior. Regardless of how objective, unbiased, or enlightened we think we are, each of us does have underlying tendencies and tastes, right along with aversions and distastes too. Those define who we are and influence to some extent, most everything we think and do. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It defines the food we like and even keeps us from danger in certain ways. But when our thoughts and preferences or those experiences are memorialized in the data that's created or collected all around us, so too are the biases upon which they're based. Unavoidably, the data reflects patterns. That's what computers do best is they discover patterns we can't that evidence based attitudes and inclinations. So when that data is made available to machine learning, the algorithm will discover those patterns. That's the, that's the whole point of it all. The problem though is this, it's difficult for AI to then determine if our patterns or behavior are based on fair and desirable attributes for the problems that they're trying to solve. So when I think about an AI application, you should think about its worldview in a lot of ways. And, and when we're talking about intervening or assisting in suicide prevention, we're talking about such a broad scope of reach. So when we think about, hey, I, I may want to do machine learning if it's correct, or maybe some automation, or maybe just connect via technology, we should think about it as like an X and Y axis. The Y axis should be something like, hey, what kind of data was this algorithm trained on? Did it account for people of diversity? of different demographics, different ages, different experiences, et cetera. How large is its pseudo worldview? And how will it be implemented and how many different people will it affect? And this matters more than ever. We've seen this play itself out in just hiring actions, right? Hire more old white men. That is a true, objectively fair reality that machine learning has brought to light for the United States particularly in corporate culture. I fear that could be even worse if we're training algorithms on biased data or maybe not representative data to combat suicide or, or trauma or depression. And then we put that out there to the world. So the most important thing now is to be incredibly thoughtful on the topic.
So when I hear you talking about biases that are essentially created, maybe if you're creating an algorithm, if I am developing an algorithm and I believe that's, let's say somebody's combat tours was one of the primary predictors of suicide, uh, then I'm going to create an algorithm that looks for combat veterans who use the kind of words for suicide. Whereas the research shows that combat is not necessarily an indicator, but if I create that bias into that, then it's going to confirm what I believe because that's what the computer is going to look for. That's what you're talking about. AI is the ultimate expression of humanity, right? AI is just a tool and it needs to be used appropriately. You wouldn't use a Phillips head on a flathead screw. It doesn't quite work that way. And AI is just the new version of what we as humans have done since the dawn of time. We create the artificial, right? That's what's special about us. Some say it was fire that made us special, but we now have evidence that birds and crows in particular have a capability of using fire to affect their nests and everything else. Chimps use tools to reach into logs and pull out ants. What makes us special and why AI is no different because it's just an expression of what we do, is we create things from nature that wouldn't otherwise exist. And I think demystifying AI in that sense is is important for people to think about. And I think we're at a point where people are desperate for a solution. Everyone's tired of it in your fellow service members, my fellow service members. So they're looking for that magic bullet. And you said, let's sprinkle this fairy dust thing called AI on it. So this thing seems magical and we're looking for a magic and not to diminish it, but that's really uh, people are trying to come up with a solution. There's this new thing that seems to work, but you're not saying don't use AI or don't use technology. What do you think are, are some ways to appropriately use technology in addressing suicide in the military-affiliated population? So to the point of effective use of technology in addressing something like trauma, for instance, we'll, we'll start there. There's a story I was particularly heartened by that was shared with me the other day by a dear friend, by the way, who is currently at officer training school after a highly successful career working child protective services for the attorney general in DC, right? What a win for our Air Force, and she'll be heading over uh, to write Pat. But it's about this very topic, and it goes something like this. Back in uh, May of this year, 2020, Brandon, he was 23 years old, and he had an underlying heart condition. He was admitted to the hospital after developing a fever. And of course, we now know that fever ended up being coronavirus. And this is at a time when there were only 70,000 cases. Unfortunately, Brandon didn't survive. And due to the lockdown, the family was unable to have a traditional funeral. So they did it in the virtual world he loves so much. Animal Crossing, right? The highest selling video game right now, especially in COVID life. But his cousin Priscilla said this, we were able to go into the town that my cousin built on his Animal Crossing farm and leave flowers. His photo was there. We can go back anytime we like. People think games, let's insert the word technology there, are just games. But this is a way to bring people together and celebrate a life. This gave us a great deal of closure. All of his friends got to go leave comments and share flowers and memories. It was so beautiful. We know my cousin is smiling down on us. He would have loved this so much. There's a cool use of technology that you wouldn't have thought of, right? To connect someone. We currently understand that there are a number of social stigmas associated, particularly in the military, with going and seeking help or meeting with a counselor. By the way, as much as we say, 
I promise nobody is looking at that. That's just not going to always be believed. And it's difficult to walk on a base and walk into these buildings. I really am inspired by, again, that journey and leading us there, like the Animal Crossing story, where we're using technology to connect people. What about some advancements in cryptography that have taken place, right? Where we could do secure connections, simultaneously teaching people why this new advanced, you know, cryptographic uh, technique is truly safe and unhackable per se, and the rest, that they feel comfortable dialoguing in the confines and, you know, safeness of their own home. But yeah, there's a lot of AI that works. Most of the time, what people say is, let's monitor social media information to analyze behaviors, patterns, and moods that lead to suicide. Or they'll review user data and say, based on that, again, back to, I guess you deployed and you saw combat, so that must be the indicator. And we also, counselors develop treatment plans that use machine learning, but the question should be, well, who benefited from those treatment plans? Was that just a very specific subset of, of the broader group? And there's some uses of computer vision, the same way Snapchat makes a mouse on your face, that's machine learning, right? But they use computer vision mixed with natural language processing and answering mental health surveys to detect depression. And then they celebrate those numbers that it's 88% accurate. For whom? The machine learning is only good as the data that it's fed back to the bias piece. So the question, is that even right? Is that accuracy true? We know how numbers are manipulated. But subsequently, if the intent is to say, let's collect all the data on people, or let's go reach back to the families and say, what was that individual doing that evening that happened or leading up into that week? The question I ask is, are there secondary and tertiary unintended consequences to, again, just whack-a-moling with AI as opposed to journeying there? Does it push people away from technology? Does it push people to the darker parts of the web? Does it make them disconnect even more? Yeah, back to the social stigma, it's very real. The last thing I wanna do is take people away from, from the technology itself to connect by saying, we're addressing suicide with AI and we're gonna predict it. And I can tell you from my contemporaries, the view on that is, oh, I guess they're watching us every day. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. So it really is about being precise with our language and then moving us there. And I think, and as you were talking, and that word precision is a very good one because it is a very fine line between someone who may be seeking help, let's say on a search engine or on a social media mm -hmm. site, using certain words and then in the search results, part of it pops up is, say, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, trying to create that serendipity of, yeah, let's give you the information you need to keep you from doing something, to Big Brother is watching me, and so yep. I'm just going to retreat back in the shadows and figure out another way to get the information I need, because I don't want Big Brother. That's the fine line and the precision. Exactly. How do you think Google became who they are? Google is... If you ask Google what they are, they'll say they're an AI company now, but they were based on search and search is driven by machine learning. So yes, when you type in suicide on Google, that is the first thing that pops up. And that is because of machine learning and that should be celebrated. But it doesn't necessarily mean someone's predicting something with that. I look at this technology as being able to connect us 
and then us asking better questions than the ones we as humans can only consume, which is, I guess they saw combat, they're likely having suicidal ideations. We should be asking way more nuanced questions, and machine learning is really good at that, but it's just for that, questions, not necessarily action being taken. I appreciate that. And the idea of AI, machine learning, computer-assisted search, all of these different things, it's the tool when we really need mm -hmm. to be paying more attention to the hand that holds the tool and the brain that guides the hand. Micah, I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time and, and your expertise. Uh, this is, as you said, it's a difficult conversation. And, and some people who are trying to use AI and machine learning to address this may be discouraged about the fact that it's not that magic bullet, but I think it's important. I really appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thanks, Dwayne. I really appreciate it as well. Technology is a tool just like any other, and Michael's point is that it can and should be used as thoughtfully and carefully as any other tool. Yeah, as usual, you and I are on the same page. That was my first point I wanted to pull out. I agree that technology has a place in innovation, as Michael said as well. I love the example of using a favorite video game, Animal Crossing, to create a space in a virtual world for loved ones to gather and remember someone who has passed. And as I said in an earlier episode, I think that Objective Zero is using technology in smart ways to create connection. Tom Cruise, also interviewed on this podcast, uses social media in brilliant ways to connect people with support. StackUp is doing the same in the gaming community. And as Tony Curtis shared, technology may help us understand trends in areas where we need to refocus resources and energy in terms of suicide prevention initiatives. What doesn't connect for me is the idea of using AI to predict which individual in a group may be at risk for suicide. This interview compelled me to think about why this idea doesn't connect for me. And here is one of a few things I realized. It's hard for me to imagine building trust from a place of assuming a level of trust that was never granted by an individual in the first place. If a person consents to have their social media data and other personal data mined and examined to target them with extra support, that seems fine to me. But barring their explicit consent, let's say that AI identifies an individual in distress. Then what? At some point in the process, there must be some form of connection that requires trust and courage on the part of two people the kind of work that Objective Zero ambassadors or stack up peer support specialists do. So how would this unfold? A person who has not permitted this process would get outreach from a human at some point who would say, because we care, we had a bot surveil you and mine your data without your knowledge and consent. And based on this, we think you are distressed and we want to support you. This is where the disconnect is, where I play out the conversation and the use of AI in any way resembling this. Emotional safety starts with trust and a basic respect. I can't see how you could build from a foundation of violating anyone's privacy without consent. And I'm worried about the likelihood that many of the warriors I serve who are not engaged in formal mental health services will in fact become even more disconnected and reclusive if these kind of approaches are ever engaged or found to be acceptable. You know, if somebody were to come up to me, somebody that I didn't know, or, or I, I had an appointment with someone the first time, and they immediately pointed out things that I don't know how they would have any way to know about, that would cause me to be suspicious. That would reduce trust. That wouldn't increase yes. trust, right? Um, exactly. However, 
the idea of getting that information, having that middle person, whether it's a tool that can be used by somebody who has already established that trust, this idea of say, there's a therapist, you don't go to the veteran and say, Hey, we think you're distressed, but being able to give that information to somebody that has trust with the veteran, I think that might be better, but it's not just a matter of cold calling and say, Hey, I saw that you didn't sleep until 3 AM two nights ago. How can we help you? I'd report I would yeah. engage. Right. Yeah, that's it. it. You just have to think the whole chain through to the logical conclusion and think about how the AI will be used when there's a human interface and think about how it affects how trust can grow or how trust would not grow from a basis that you're launching it out of. And it's also a really good point and chilling in a way, really, that Michael talks about how AI models are a representation of our existing biases. The wrong predictive model or a misapplied understanding of suicide prevention insights could increase the culture gap between healers and the people they hope to support. As you and Michael talked about, Dwayne, there's a common myth that veterans become suicidal because of combat deployments. To many people who have never been in combat, who did not have combat training, who are not best tapped as society's warfighters, combat can seem like the highest form of trauma and the cause of suicidal distress. Yet, as you said, research doesn't bear this out. I shudder to think that people who hold intrinsic, perhaps even unrecognized beliefs that veterans are broken because of X, Y, or Z could be influential in creating algorithms for AI that could further perpetuate the myth of the broken veteran. AI is like all research. The common saying in the research community, garbage in, garbage out, is a reason for caution in the use of AI in the application of AI to suicide prevention. Yes. Anytime you have humans creating a tool, that tool is going to be shaped to how they hold that particular tool. That's the, the fundamental part because, and, and this is even our brains, using our brains to look at our brains kind of thing. But that was a point that Michael had helped me consider is the fact that people with certain preconceived notions will develop an algorithm to look for those things that they have preconceived. And then the algorithm will then return back to the individual with preconceived notions that yes, your preconceived notions are correct. And here's a group of individuals that meet that. And so again, I think it's this very deliberate it's and as you said, just before this, not just thinking about the chain all the way through the human interaction, but thinking about the chain even at the very beginning is saying, I need to question my assumptions and see if they're accurate before I move forward with this. Yeah, you know what it is, is a misapplication of the golden rule that we often project onto other the things we think would cause them to stress based on what would cause us to feel distressed or traumatized. And if you haven't been trained as a warrior and you're not wired that way, you would naturally think, wow, having to see X, Y, or Z in a combat theater might be a great source of distress for me. So I imagine that it's the cause of trauma for veterans. And it's a misapplication that could really result in some biases in how we develop our AI modeling. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think that even goes back to that idea that we've had before on the show about what has worked for me must therefore then work for everybody else. And it's simply not the case. So we appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS43, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store. In the show notes, you can get links to everything we talked about in this episode 
as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chatting online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. And make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest episodes. Join us next time for another great conversation. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. <laughs>